Heads and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and colleague and brother from another mother, Derek Davison. Uh, Derek, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right uh, for a change. I know uh, I'm usually <laughs> Debbie Downer here, but I uh, eh, can't complain. It's almost Christmas, you know. <laughs> it's so nice to hear that little lilt, that little skip in your step. I can see it <laughs> on the screen how, how well you're doing, um, and and it's really nice, especially as we approach, I think, our five or six month anniversary of American yeah. Prestige. So uh, again, as we approach the holiday season, we've got some cool episodes coming up, and I just wanted to thank everyone for listening and and making the podcast a success. Uh, we really Definitely. appreciate that. Um, so why don't we just get into it? Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about some polling issues that have been going on in Chile and uh, France? But let's start with Chile, because what's been going on there really might suggest um, whether the so-called return of the pink tide, the leftward tilt that had defined Latin American politics in the early and mid-2000s, um, is is going to happen, or, or whether that was a Kimbera. So Derek, what's been going on in Chile? Uh, yeah, so Chile had the first round of his presidential election last month. Uh, the, f- the top two finishers were Jose Antonio Cast and uh, Gabriel Boric. Apologies if I'm butchering either of those names. I'm probably doing both. But neither one of them finished with 50%, so they have to go to a runoff, which is being held on Sunday. Cast won the first round, and it uh, looked at, uh, briefly like he might be the favorite going into the runoff. Then the polling pretty quickly after the first round shifted in Boric's favor. Uh, now it looks like it shifted again. Uh, there was a poll earlier this week that showed the race tightening up. Uh, there's one that I see that just came out today uh, that shows them basically in a dead heat. So, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see. It has certainly regional implications. Cast has been compared to Jair Bolsonaro. He's far right. Um, he talks kind of wistfully about the Pinochet era, so he's one of, one of those kind of guys. Uh, Boric is a leftist, so it's interesting that this race doesn't have, I think, anybody that could be considered, quote-unquote, moderate. You're, you're really looking at a left versus right contest. And, of course, Chile's in the, the process of uh, maybe rewriting its constitution, trying to move away from the uh, the Pinochet era. But if Cast is elected, that'll that'll certainly uh, have implications for that process. This is the most uncertain and polarized election in Chile since 1970. We don't know who the next president will be, and that alone is a novelty here. In Chile, the one who got most votes in the first round always won in the second. But we can't say that this time. And so let's say that the uh, leftist, what, what's his name again? Boric, I think. Gabriel Boric. Boric is elected. Does that indicate anything about the future politics of the continent or not? Because I feel like Latin America is undergoing one of its periodic transitions, as as, uh, as always happens. And there has been some talk amongst the American left in particular about, you know, indications that this pink tide is uh, um, going to come back, particularly when people speak about Lula and Brazil. But do you think that is is actually happening or what's your take on the broader implications here i mean the outward indications are it's happening certainly you've had you know elections in bolivia argentina honduras uh, nicaragua um, I'm sure I'm forget Peru, uh, all seeing sort of a, a swing toward leftist or at least 
um, candidates left of center. Um, and yeah, I, I think these things do build some, uh, regional momentum. So I think for Boric to win would continue that. And, and if Cost wins, um, uh, you know, it would certainly indicate or it, it, it could put a damper on that. I don't know that it's going to be, uh, enough to affect the Brazilian election, which is next year. And, you know, polling in that has Lula, you know, defeating Bolsonaro by like 30 points. Right. Uh, so that's that, that, if that polling is, is accurate, um, you know, that race seems pretty set. And it's not like, Lula, I mean, Lula's a pretty known quantity. He was president of Brazil, so it's not like you're going to learn anything about him that uh, people didn't already know. So there, there shouldn't be too many surprises in that race. Uh, but yes, even even so, I mean, I think there's obvious uh, regional uh, implications here, sure. So uh, there is another um, election happening across the Atlantic. So let's take our Prussian auto gyro from Chile <laughs> to France. Uh, and what has been going on there? Um, interestingly enough, it, it's uh, an election where the centrist candidate might be a uh, spoiler. So what's been going on, Derek? Yeah, so um, France is holding uh, its presidential election in April, uh, the first round, uh, I think April 10th, uh, I'm saying this off the top of my head, uh, there will inevitably be a second round because that's uh, how French politics roll and there's so many candidates, there's no way one is going to win a majority. Uh, so the second round will happen a couple of weeks after that. Emmanuel Macron, the, the incumbent, um, has not yet said explicitly that he's running for re-election, but he's doing TV interviews, he's uh, touring the country, he's uh, doing a lot of things that he isn't normally inclined to do as he sort of views himself as a, a above the fray, in a sense. A uh, friend of the podcast, by the way, Emmanuel Macron. Big, big <laughs> Naturally. <shout out. laughs> um, so it, it seems pretty clear that he's running, even though he won't say so what's what's interesting is the uh what's happening and again this is relying on polling so eh, you know if you want to uh take it with a grain of salt that's i wouldn't blame you but what's happening on the right is interesting for for the last almost five years now since the 2017 election uh most of the speculation has been that macron will wind up uh, in a rematch with marine le pen in the runoff uh he defeated her obviously quite easily um uh, in 2017, and polling indicates that he would defeat her fairly easily this time around if they wound up in the runoff. However, another far-right figure, a media pundit like uh, you know Sean Hannity type, I guess, named uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this because I have no French pronunciation, but uh, Eric Zemmour has also entered the race, and it looks to me, if you look at the polling, it looks to me like he's um, kind of cut deeply into Le Pen's support. Basically, they're splitting uh, the far, the disturbingly large far-right vote. And so they're both polling now in like the mid-teens, and they've fallen behind uh, in recent polling uh, the more mainstream conservative nominee of the Republican Party, the French Republican Party. Again, I'm going to butcher this, Valerie Pécresse, or Pécresse, Apologies, I'm really sorry. So she's now kind of inched ahead of them and looks like she may be the candidate that Macron faces in the runoff, which is interesting because unlike these far-right figures who don't have a wide base of support, Pecresa is a, a, a relative moderate. She's certainly more mainstream. And there's been at least one recent poll uh, that's indicated this had her beating Macron in the runoff. So that, that could be interesting to watch. I'm sure Macron would prefer to run against one of the two extremists if uh, if he could that would be an easier runoff for him 
So it seems like France, um, barring some exogenous shock, which, you know, might very well happen, um, it's always fun about international politics, is going to remain roughly in the sort of center, center-right, neoliberal fold. Yes. The, yeah, there's no, I mean, uh, th- there is activity certainly on the French left, but again, based on the polling, there's no indication that that anybody from that uh, wing of the, the country's politics is is close to getting into the runoff. So why don't we go from there to Turkey? And um, it's pretty interesting. It hasn't gotten much play in the American press, or at least not that I've seen. But Turkey officially changed its name from Turkey to uh, Turkia. So Derek, could you maybe explain why they did that? And again, just for listeners who might be interested, give a, a brief little precis on the language politics uh, of Turkey, which uh, go back to the founding of the republic in the post-Ottoman period. Yeah, Turkey and language is an interesting thing. The emergence uh, of modern Turkish when the Republic of Turkey was founded and they stopped using Arabic script to write the Turkish language and they they tried, you know, with varying degrees of success to eliminate a lot of the Arabic and Persian constructions and vocabulary that had been, you know, kind of brought into Ottoman Turkish. Uh, That was a a difficult process. It it left a lot of people, especially kind of middle-aged and old uh, people really, it, it made them illiterate almost overnight. In, in a sense, the changing changing the script in particular. So that was that was a very difficult process. Yeah, changing the it, script it, from an Arabic script to a Latinate script, right? right? That's how you officially right. talk about it. Yeah, right. And so the, the country has had this kind of interesting relationship with language and, you know, throughout its history. This move, the, the, it's basically, it basically seems like a branding thing. They've decided to uh, start stamping all um, Turkish exports with made in Turkey instead of made in Turkey. Um, I, I mean, I guess it, it's sort of, it's a way to claim or sort of, sort of emphasize the Turkish language. Uh, Turkey is the way that you, you say the name of the country in Turkish. Um, it's a way to kind of claim, I guess, some past uh, or, or some, you know, kind of strong imperial past, maybe. It's also a way to get away from some of the less flattering connotations of the word Turkey, as anybody who celebrated Thanksgiving or ever called somebody a turkey uh, would recognize. Maybe <laughs> It's they, an insult uh, I use all the time. I call right. Derek a turkey I, you know, off I mean, mic, like, all yeah, the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Come on, you turkey, um, you know, let's little, get to work. <laughs> little old-fashioned, but, you know, I guess they want to want to kind of get away from that. So, uh, it, it is a branding exercise. I think it, it fits nicely within uh, Erdogan's kind of uh, worldview and his sort of neo-Ottomanism, as people call it, you know, his kind of attempt to recast Turkey as a, a major world power. But for the most part, it's, it's, um, it's for branding purposes. And so how does this relate to the fact that the Turkish lira has really collapsed recently? Do you find any relationship or this is just happenstance? I, I, I mean, I, think it's happenstance in in a direct way. I mean, certainly there's uh, a lot of concern about the lira has hit, you know, it's been hitting like record lows against the dollar lately and Erdogan's sort of uh, like 
uh, has been playing around with the interest interest rates. He's very opposed to raising interest rates, which is the the sort of uh, economic conventional wisdom about you know how you deal with inflation and uh, a decline in currency values. So uh, there's been a lot of controversy about that. He may be trying to capitalize on the the low lira by sort of uh, emphasizing exports, which uh, you know this branding could, uh, I guess, in theory, help help with. But mostly, I think that the economic issues are uh, are a hindrance to him. I mean, he's again trying to you know portray Turkey as a strong world power, but he's really under some domestic fire for uh, the collapsing economy or the weakening economy. Yeah, we'll see what happens to him. He's been able to hold on for uh, a. Through through attempted coup attempts, yeah, things he along has. those lines, and, and the, the so. system at this point is sort of rigged in his favor in a lot of ways. So uh, I don't know how much of a political cost he, he'll actually pay, but something to watch. So why don't we head uh, a little south and talk about the UAE and the F thirty five, one of the biggest boondoggles in American defense production history. So what's been going on there, Derek? Yeah, so earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal had this uh, big exclusive kind of breaking report that the UAE, which cut, uh, I think, $23 billion arms deal to buy the F-35, to buy Reaper drones, a lot of high-end U.S. military technology as part of the so-called Abraham Accords, uh, when it agreed to normalize relations with Israel, the Trump administration sweetened the pot basically, with this, uh, by dangling this arms deal. The UAE is now talking about pulling out of that deal or suspending it because they don't like the restrictions that the U.S. has placed on uh, this technology, most of which, most of them having to do with preventing it from uh, falling into Chinese hands. There's a growing concern that the UAE and China are getting very close with one another. There was a story, again, in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago about China maybe having started building a naval base uh, in Abu Dhabi that the Emiratis claimed they had no idea, they had no knowledge of, and they still insist it wasn't a naval base, but they suspended the construction uh, because of the, the concerns that were voiced by the U.S. So I guess that plays into this you know, desire to kind of secure the technology and make sure that it doesn't get to China through the UAE. But so the UAE has, you know, sort of said, we don't, well, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to make it that difficult, we don't want it anymore, which sent a, a flurry, a little bit of a panic through Washington, both because, you know, our poor, uh, struggling defense contractors need that money desperately to put food on their families. Uh, and also because, you know, the geopolitical implications of a major arms deal like that, which have to do, you know, in part with keeping a country like the UAE out of China's orbit and and kind of dependent on the United States. So Anthony Blinken, I think yesterday said on Wednesday, said that, you know, we're we're ready to go ahead with this deal. I don't know if that means that they've relaxed the, the restrictions that the UAE was upset about. I didn't even know that the UAE was that upset about them. It could just be a negotiating tactic. But it sounds like the the Biden administration will do what it can to uh, to keep this deal alive. So does this suggest anything about the Biden approach to foreign policy or the so-called, you know, never-ending pivot to Asia or the new Cold War? Or what does this suggest, particularly as um, after Biden, uh, you know, drew down in Afghanistan? And, and what does this indicate about his Middle East policy, if anything? 
Well, I mean, it's it's basically con- a continuation of you know past Middle East policies, which uh, you wouldn't bat an eye at if the the administration hadn't uh, made this big show about uh, oh we're sent we're putting human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy, and uh, you know we just had the summit for democracy last week where we we're talking about how worried we are about authoritarian states and the the bad things that they do. You know, it it just sort of highlights that that's all bullshit, basically. Um, <laughs> that we're you know what what drives American foreign policy is basic geopolitical considerations. Uh, it's money uh, for arms deals. Uh, again, the the pull of the the new Cold War with China, which is uh, so is silly and self inflicted that I have a hard time talking about it. But that I mean that's what this is about. It's about keeping the UAE uh, in the U.S. orbit and keeping the defense dollars flowing. Well, in that happy news, why don't we speak? quickly about a recent New York Times report on Syria and particularly civilian casualties. Yeah, I'm not going to often say this, but uh, if people haven't read uh, this story in the New York Times, normally I would be talking about how you should unsubscribe from the New York Times. But uh, there was one on Sunday that was, I think, uh, quite good investigative piece building on previous work that they've done covering allegations of U.S. war crimes in Syria in in the latter days of the the war against the Islamic State. This one talked about a, a unit, a special forces unit that was called Talon Anvil, which was responsible basically for identifying targets for U.S. airstrikes. The abuses that they they made to the system, basically, you know, things like categorizing every strike as a uh, an act of self-defense to avoid oversight, to avoid sort of the, the safeguards that were supposed to be in place to, to protect right. civilians. That um, Obama put in, like this sort of right. legal war on right. terror, effectively ways to circumvent that. Um, but they, they circumvented that, and, and the, the indications are that they called in a, a huge number of strikes against, basically against targets that they couldn't identify, but that turned out to be civilians rather than uh, than combatants. And it's uh, it's a really disturbing story. I don't want to you know spend a lot of time kind of going through it now people should check it out in the times if you can but it's it's in, indicative of the the war on terror basically and the the abuses that uh, uh, have gone on for the last 20 years in the name of uh, I, I don't even know what what is in the name freedom, of freedom democracy us yeah, hegemony like, it's unclear at this point liberalism yeah. which is actually what we talk a bit about in our in our interview and so as usual on that happy note everyone thank you for listening and we'll see you next week Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly interview. I am very happy to be joined by, as always, Derek Davison, and also my colleague and friend, Shada Jahanbani, who is an associate professor at the University of Kansas. Shada, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. This is fun. Um, and so, well, we'll see. Maybe this will be like the real hot seat. <laughs> famous yeah. last words. Yeah, famous last words. So, uh, is there some sort of amazing ritual that has to happen here, or is this going to be pretty? Uh, oh, you'll find pretty it. gentle. Yeah, at American <laughs> Prestige, where this is hard hitting journalism. But uh, one thing that we haven't really talked about, well, we've danced around on the podcast a lot, is sort of this big issue of development. And you're a historian of many things, one of which is development. So I was wondering if we could, hoping we could focus this podcast on that. So why don't I just start? with a broad question and then you could go from there but what is development and why do liberals seem to love it so much liberals do love it they love Um, it (laughs) 
I want to, you know, I, I, in this context, don't want to give you like an hour long history lecture. Um, so instead, I'm just going to try to be as, as brief as possible. Development is an intellectual framework that emerged really in, a, in the early part of, I would say, in the 1930s, mostly when people began thinking about economies in macro contexts. That development is a vision of essentially how to extend the benefits of modern life to all people, and especially the economic benefits of modern capitalism. Industrial capitalism is what really inspired development thinkers. There are lots of arguments that development bears, you know, significant uh, similarities to imperial projects, and those are really sound arguments. And of course, no idea just comes out of the blue. It's always a process of building and bricolage, if you like. But I think how we could um, distinguish development from empire, at least as I try to explain it to my students, for instance, you know, is that development was a sort of well-intentioned, very, very embedded in the liberal internationalist tradition view of how to make the world more prosperous, um, more productive, and to a certain extent, more equitable. Now, its impacts have been very different, but at least in prospect, that's why I think there's been such a romance among liberals over generations with this idea is it has the veneer of a really well-intentioned view of, of essentially how to solve a global problem. So one of the things that I'm interested in and I want to talk a bit about more is why you identify the 30s as this type of hinge points because scholars such as Niels Gilman or David Ekblad have traced it back to like basically the 19th century and the early 20th century. And on this podcast, we talked with someone like Christy Thornton about, you know, Porfirio Diaz's mm -hmm. modernization project. So the idea of sort of industrializing and modernizing poorer or rural areas is obviously something that precedes the 1930s. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk about how does that decade or what happens from that decade forward um, depart from it to the degree that you could call like effectively modern development developing as an idea, as a concept in that decade? Right. So I think for me, why I identify the 30s as a, a kind of a hinge point is, again, not that these ideas just were, you know, suddenly sprouted from the soil, but rather that the notion that economic planning was possible on an international scale became more commonplace. And so, you know, thinking about sort of Keynesian ideas that essentially scarcity, which had been the key economic problem, um, was sort of solved. This is Keynes's big insight. And in 1930, he publishes um, this wonderful little article called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, in which he says, as many uh, public intellectuals in the 1950s will echo, he says, um, basically, we figured it out. Like, we know how to solve the problem of scarcity. Now it's just about figuring out how to extend that throughout the world. Um, and, and so to me, what makes it politically possible for people to start thinking, again, liberals in particular, about development versus you know, empire, uh, what, you know, how they, or white man's burden or any of these ideas, um, tropes, I guess I would say, is this notion that economic planning is possible on that kind of scale. So who are the first developers and, and what way, so what always struck me about development is that liberalism, you know, the, the first 
let's say half of the of the 20th century is really a fight i think a global fight in the north atlantic world between liberalism fascism and communism and so um what liberals are trying to do is they're trying to present an alternative vision um and, and uh, development plays a key part in that so uh, who are the first developers you know the people who are advocating development how do they envision themselves in this you know apocalypse struggle that that takes off, you know, that, re that, that reaches terminal velocity in the 1930s. May I talk about someone kind of obscure who, uh, you, oh, who I think please. is a, an especially... <laughs> bring, bring them to light. So I, I became really interested in this character called John Collier, who was the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs during the Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. And I think of Collier, again, as a sort of action intellectual, if you like. Um, he's someone who, uh, for most of the, the 1910s and 20s, is involved in progressive urban programs to essentially assimilate immigrants. But he's part of a sort of cultural pluralist community. So despite being a Southerner, um, he, he eschews the sort of hard edges of social Darwinism and kind of, you know, really um, the most extreme forms of white supremacy. And instead is one of those people who's sort of beginning to see something we might call diversity, but which he would have called pluralism, as really an advantage to a dynamic modern society as opposed to a disadvantage. So Collier starts in this context and, um, and he discovers after being sort of hounded out of politics in New York City by, and in California by anti-communist forces during in the first Red Scare, he discovers indigenous people in the American Southwest. And what he sees are essentially nations, poor nations, um, you know, benighted people who have been colonized, who could use really um, sort of major social science intervention. And when he becomes the leader of, um, he first becomes the leader of an advocacy movement, the um, American Indian movement, and then also, you know, he rises to the level of, of national attention and becomes Roosevelt's BIA commissioner. He basically starts a series of what we would call development programs. And, you know, people like Nils have written about, um, you know, and, and David Eckblad about the TBA. I think Collier is one of those people who doesn't get as much attention, but strikes me as the perfect kind of, um, you know, uh, just icon of this liberal development, really almost like religion. Uh, he, he comes to see poverty as a problem that can be solved not by economic redistribution, despite the context of the New Deal, but that the poverty of people who have been colonized can only be solved through this thing called development. And he even uses that term. And, you know, he, under that rubric, uses um, a variety of, of sort of social science theories to think about cultural development, economic development, political development. He insists that Native tribes in the United States, um, you know, you know, write their own constitutions. Uh, he tries to incorporate native languages into education programs for Indian communities. So here's this person who's really thinking he's got a holistic solution to the problem of, of what he would have called Indian poverty. Um, he winds up meeting a lot of uh, Mexican intellectuals who are concerned about a similar problem and developing these cross um, cultural and trans 
national action programs that, you know, I think I think he's kind of fascinating and weird. And I think his links to the progressive movement, the New Deal, and then into the 1950s, what we would call maybe um, sort of the social science, you know, the, the, the social scientist that liberals loved, his, that community, um, I think make him a good example of kind of an architect of development who's not, you know, a Walt Rostow or somebody sort of famous like that, but instead somebody who was really doing the work of harnessing government resources to make development programs happen. That's really interesting. And I want to uh, drill down a little bit on two um, ideas or two two broad topics that you mentioned, which is one, the progressive movement, and then two, social science. So maybe you could just explain for listeners who might not know what the progressive movement is, because my, my new big meta theory of history is that the national security state is just the apotheosis of late 19th century progressivism, totally, that totally won. Um, so I tweeted the other day that we're, like liberalism is the dominant philosophy of the 20th century. And what I meant by that is that basically the progressives, the capital P progressives, instantiated their ideas and institutions connected to the American state, both domestically and internationally. And through because the American state became, you know, the the head of this empire, the brain of the empire, um, state broadly defined to include parastatal institutions, um, really dominated the world. So could you just maybe go back a little bit um, and talk about progressivism? And then um, social science might come up naturally in that, but if it doesn't, I want to <laughs> drill down on that too. Okay. So, I mean, I think debates among historians um, about labels are some of the most boring conversations <laughs> that ever happen, but there actually has been a very lively one that I'm sure you're familiar with about what progressivism actually was. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a very diverse, it's, a, it's an umbrella term for a very diverse community of it's activists. It's more structure. I don't know, Shada, what do you think of this? It seems to be more of a structure of feeling than anything. You know, it's because there's right, they're, they're on the far right, they're on the far left, but it's just like things are fucked up and we need to change somehow by like using new tools. But sorry. Please yeah. Go. So I, I think one of the key things that I try to remember when I'm when I'm trying to find common threads among progressives is that they all believe to a certain extent that power, that knowledge was power and that shining a light on a problem meant that you could derive a useful and effective solution. And you know, the problems they were interested in varied, the solutions that they came up with varied, but this sort of idea that out there in the world were a series of problems waiting to be solved, I think was a crucial component of, of how I would at least define progressivism. Um, in particular, when we're talking about, you know, what somebody like the historian Alice O'Connor calls poverty knowledge, um, you know, the sort of branch of progressivism that's really relevant there are, uh, first of all, urban reformers. So these are largely middle class, you know, fairly well educated people who are living in American cities at a time of, you know, um, real reckoning with, uh, huge population increases in, in urban centers. And they are, you know, deploying this sense of a certain kind of entitlement, again, to define what a social problem is, to identify problems and solve them. And, you know, they're using a variety of different um, administrative mechanisms and, and policy strategies to do that from, you know, trying to influence city government, being in city government, to, of course, the most famous example, you know, is the settlement house movement, which is um, really trying to uh, essentially put these middle class volunteers in 
it's almost like a precursor to the Peace Corps idea to put middle class volunteers into communities where there are poor people, create a kind of island of stability, invite poor people who were largely immigrant communities at the time into these spaces and offering them what we might call the sort of building blocks of, you know, modernization and development, you know, by my, it's teach by my, for America, basically it's teach for America. It's the Peace Corps. It's the same, the same principle. And, you know, in the process, it's, it, it comes to represent for, um, lots of liberals, you know, sort of like the best traditions of American uh, political culture, volunteerism, a kind of innovation, right, that social innovation, which is happening on the ground based on what's really there in front of you. Uh, uh, there's a kind of common sense, pragmatic approach. All of this is, is sort of worth celebrating for American liberals as a heritage for social problem solving. So, I mean, I think that's the most um, significant community of progressives that I would say who start to really develop ideas about how to address poverty. But that being said, um, you know, yeah, social science and really uh, intellectual life was another sort of key plank of the progressive movement, and especially... Um, you know, there's a transnational progressive movement in, in England. There are similar communities, um, in, even in France. And so you have sort of American at a time of real, you know, international, uh, travel and exploration for middle class people. Um, you have American reformers going overseas and, you know, foreign reformers coming to the U.S. And a lot of sharing is taking place and collaboration about what problems look like and, again, how to come up with solutions. So there's an interesting tension there, right, which is um, this is both uh, an approach that's based on the idea that local observation is important and local solutions have to be tailored, you know, in a, in a very specific way. Um, this sort of the idea of the settlement house is an extremely local, it's essentially an embedded space. But at the same time, at the level of ideas, these people are essentially deriving solutions, um, you know, that are supposed to be relevant no matter what the context is. It's supposed to be the same in London as it is in Paris, as it is in Chicago, and then for somebody like John Collier, as it is in Taos, New Mexico at the Taos Pueblo. So there's this really weird kind of tension between the macro and the micro um, that I think actually, you know, somebody like Daniel Immervar obviously has talked about this in his work on community development. That tension exists consistently in the development communities. Are the solutions supposed to be big and, and sort of, you know, imposed from the top down and kind of one size fits all, or do they have to come from the bottom up? So, um, and this comes to define international development uh, in the future as well. And so you, what you see here is I think the story that Shade is telling really shows how um, these concepts are, are, are very complicated because in one sense they're meant to uh, address domestic issues, right? Like like we were talking about with the settlement houses and later the TVA. But there's this network of international, effectively bourgeois reformers that mm -hmm. are, are speaking across borders. And then once the United States states sort of um, seizes the imperial mantle, uh, what happens is that 
these ideas are then exported abroad. And I, I do want to get to the abroad part in a second, but I was wondering if you could uh, talk, um, because it's such an important concept, even if a bit basic, about how social science plays into this. Because we have this sort of knowledge is power, you know, Foucault avant la lettre, a hundred years before Foucault, basically making the same claim. And there was actually a lot of interesting work in the early 2000s that never really took off with people trying to, you know, combat postmodernism by saying, like, these problems were all, you know, addressed in the progressive movement a hundred years ago. Never really took off, but I think there's something there. Um, but I think social science is really crucial to this effort. So what is social science and how does it inform development? Because in some sense, they're almost synonymous. Yeah. So social science, um, you know, really has its roots in the Enlightenment. So there we can travel back a couple of centuries, you know, to the notion that um, human life is observable and that human problems are definable and that um, the scientific method, uh, you know, can work to provide solutions that can then be, um, you know, manifested in, in public policy. Thinking of society as something to be studied is sort of a core innovation of the enlightenment and and you know the the decades after the enlightenment um when people are trying to figure out what it was all about so you know i think social science as a set of concepts um or as a a lens through which to understand human experience has its roots there of course really when we're talking about like the progressive era and then you know the 20th century more, more broadly we're talking about a professionalized social science in which there are institutions of higher education that have departments that teach fields like sociology political economy um, anthropology becomes a big one in in the early 20th century and you know there's wonderful research that that helps us see the ways in which for instance the colonial project really inspires the creation of social science as a formal set of, of knowledge disciplines. Um, and so, again, there are some problematic, uh, uh, you know, connections well, for those American wanna, liberals in the 1930s who think they're doing something different than empire. And I just want to emphasize there, the reason that it's related to colonialism is the idea that gaining knowledge about the colonial population would be able you, uh, would enable you to control it. So that social yeah. sciences as sort of instruments of control are, are crucial here. Well, again, I mean, I think so. I think that's absolutely true. And we can say that as historians in the 21st century. But I think that one of the things that is important to really thinking clearly about the whole development discourse is I think it's really important to pay attention to the way people justify their own behavior in their time and place. And I think this is sort of a key thing that that um, sometimes in our desire to show how these development people were all fucked in the head and, and you know, <laughs> colonialist and, and racialist, we can, we can kind of flatten the distinctions between different generations of development thinking. And so I think we can do the same thing to a certain extent with social science. I mean, uh, you know, controlling colonial populations and improving colonial populations were one in the same for lots of people, um, especially in the, in the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Um, and we need to attend to those similarities, but I think it's also really valuable to be um, cognizant of the projects that people thought they were engaged in. I don't know a more, uh, a, a more clever way of saying that, but I think, you know, as I think about our own lives as political agents, I always try to tell my students, like, 
you got to take people in the past as if they actually believe what they say, (laughs) because we do when we say stupid shit that I'm sure someone is going to judge us for, you know, 50 years from now. So uh, to me, I think that, you know, yeah, of course, we can see that the goal of those uh, um, of those, you know, early social science forays into essentially supporting the state were about controlling, um, you know, unwieldy uh, colonial populations. I think at the time, people in colonial administration who were deploying social science thought that they were being, you know, enlightened administrators. And, you know, to go back to my favorite weirdo, John Collier, you know, he's somebody who he unearths all of this colonial administration um, sort of data and all these insights from British colonial administration. And he himself historicizes like when he thinks that material turned from being, um, you know, brutal and racialist to being enlightened. And I think it's interesting to see the thinking of someone in the 1930s saying, oh, you know, there was a bad colonialism and now there's a, there's actually a good colonialism and we need to figure out how to do more of the good stuff. So, you know, again, historians are interested in, in subtle continuities and changes as well as big ones. And so um, I think when we talk about social science as a core of, of the development discourse more broadly, again, the really the, the key idea is that you can identify, that you can turn people into problems and then you can come up with um, wise and effective ways to solve those problems. And that is sort of the work that social science is doing consistently. Also, you know, policy, like if there's anything liberals love as much as um, solving social problems, it's like the social scientists who help them solve those problems and make them feel like policy can actually intervene into these ancient foes of humankind, right? Hunger, poverty, war. Um, and so I, I think that it's sort of crucial to see this relationship between action-oriented policymaker types and a group of people with university degrees who by the early 20th century are saying like, yeah, we can actually tell you how to solve these problems. And so it's part of the sort of rise of the romance of expertise and this whole sense that, you know, yes, we can actually do this stuff. Right. And, and, and precedes meritocracy and sort of the epistemological structures we have today. So now that we got those basic ideas, which I think are so crucial to everything we do on this podcast, um, out of the way, let's go to the 1930s. So we have these, you know, transnational networks. We have these domestically focused projects. How does development go international? And I imagine that's related to the New Deal state in World War II. So if maybe you could tell, um, that story and, you know, what makes development an international, a genuinely international project? project. I mean, I think it's entirely, this is at least, you know, what my research um, convinces me of, is that it's entirely about the United States transformation from essentially an insulated world power with an incredible economy that can, you know, provide armaments and food to the rest of the world, but that doesn't really want to take responsibility for the world, to, you know, uh, the global hegemon that it becomes after 1945. And, you know, I think the Cold War really, even in its earliest, years is crucial to this story because partly what the Cold War does is it it presents to American liberals, especially who've just gone through, you know, if we think about the generation of people in 1945 who are in government, you know, you're talking about people who saw World War I happen 
and saw how imperialism, European imperialism, really led the world to the brink of destruction. Of course, they had no idea in 1920 you know, that there would be yet more um, threats to truly global destruction after, after the, you know, the um, advent of, of atomic weapons. But they see this as a cataclysm. And then they see a whole generation of policymakers essentially just step back and say, we're just not going to do anything about it. And so by, and, and they see the, the rise of fascism and extremism around the world and really the threat to democracy as being, you know, really rooted in that decision that the United States makes to withdraw from the world in really the only real decade of isolationism that the U.S. has, uh, the 1920s. And, and so when they get their, their turn at the bat, you know, their overarching commitment is that they are not going to make those mistakes. They've just engaged in a project, a domestic project, which has really tamed the beast of capitalism. And they are feeling extremely confident, again, thinking about, you know, just our, our first, um, the first question you posed about why the 1930s, you know, they have achieved an extraordinary um, victory in terms of, of using insights of economic planning to, you know, save the world. And, and I think that this moment is sort of when for uh, especially U.S. policymakers who define themselves as internationalists, it's like, this is the time to step up, solve the world's problems, invent new ones if need be. Um, and, and, and that that is necessary to forestall another global conflagration. Um, and, and so the Cold War is perfect for liberals because it actually provides them with the worst case scenario, which is that they fail. And communism, which makes really persuasive accusations against liberal capitalism when it comes to issues of poverty, um, you know, that communism is, is the only way forward for the world, especially for a, a vast poor world, which uh, one of the things that, that I found really interesting in my own research is the extent to which all of these American liberals who go to Europe in the 1930s actually comment about the poverty of Europe and, and kind of see it for the first time. They see how war has impoverished this place that, you know, a lot of them had seen as sort of the apex of modernity. And that it's not, you know, uh, this, this like sense that, you know, people have turned against each other. Instead, it's that poverty is the prevailing circumstance that war makes. And so, you know, they then kind of translate that idea to the rest of the world because they've got poverty on their minds and they've seen how poverty leads to fascism. And they now see, you know, there's more of it than they expected to find. And they, because they've just been emboldened by, you know, the successes of the new deal figure that they know how to solve this problem. So, uh, you know, the consistent thing that I keep, that I keep drawing is this kind of relationship, to go to your, your very first question about why liberals love development so much is that they think they know what the problem is and they think they have the solution. And, you know, if that's how you walked through the world, you know, you'd be very confident and try to convince people to listen to you. So especially um, after world war two, when you won this, you know, uh, world war. <laughs> uh, yeah. and I think also, I mean, it is an amazing achievement. We, we, you know, what happens in the United States um, and what the United States does in the world in, in that 15 years is a really remarkable episode in human history. So you could understand people, you know, wanting to um, essentially extend the 
gains, I guess is the phrase we might use. Yeah. And they also view themselves, I think that's right, as the heirs of European civilization and Western civilization writ large. And, and I think that's emboldened by those experiences in the 30s and also World War II, where Europe essentially commits suicide and they, and they take over. So could you talk a little bit about where in the American state are these development people? Are they just in the state? Are they in think tanks? What institutions do they literally occupy? Because how are they able to exert their influence on an emergent national security state that I think is mostly interested in security and economics uh, and developments uh, becomes increasingly important over the course of the 1950s and especially the 1960s. Um, but I was wondering, what role does development play in that very early Cold War moment, you know, 47 to 55, uh, and where in the state is it located, and what are these people doing? Okay, so... I, when I think about the development community in the 1940s and 50s, I'm actually, especially because I'm really interested in, in liberals, um, I'm thinking of a really, uh, again, a pretty big tent. I'm thinking of people who really cut their teeth working in New Deal agencies, whose careers, you know, as graduate students or as young, young, mostly men in their, in their 20s, were seriously limited by the Great Depression. So these are people who lived this story, right? They've lived the years from 1929 to 1945. You know, for me, someone who's sort of a perfect example of this is like a John Kenneth Galbraith, who winds up being just this profoundly um, influential American public intellectual, uh, who really, I think, is sort of a prototypical post-war liberal. He, you know, he works after after getting his degree in economics, agricultural economics. He he winds up working for the Office of Price Administration um, during the Second World War and meets a bunch of people like Chester Bowles, who will go on to become uh, an assistant secretary of state and a major writer on development, um, and especially on, quote unquote, the third world. Uh, you know, somebody like Galbraith will have been in the trenches of trying to plan the economy during the Second World War, and then will come out of that, get a nice job at Harvard, finally, and really be able to Tra sort of travel in and out of government at his leisure. He first winds up working for the State Department, and then pretty quickly, as he sees the sort of chill, you know, from Cold War, really reaction, uh, sort of fixating on the State Department, he says, I'm going to go be a journalist for Fortune magazine for a while. I'm going to go, you know, start a, a policy group in the Democratic National Committee to try to influence, um, you know, politics. And for somebody like Galbraith, he's talking about the key issue of poverty abroad and affluence at home, not just in his, you know, famous best-selling book, the Affluent Society published in 1958. He's talking about that in articles he writes for Fortune in 1945. He winds up, you know, I'm sure you know this, Danny, he winds up being one of the people who uh, is a key architect of the strategic bombing survey, which tries to figure out what the actual impact of the U.S. aerial campaign was on Japan and Germany. And, and famously, that, Robert McNamara also part yes. of that. <laughs> and that document, that, you know, gazillion page document, if you <laughs> read it, is actually full of assertions about poverty and 
and uh, essentially about what the economic impact of this dislocating, you know, rupture in human history has been. And so, I mean, he's somebody who I just think is a perfect example. He's in and out of government over the years. He winds up being ambassador to India. He's a very important figure uh, in the Kennedy administration as sort of a, I mean, he's like one of the only ambassadors, I think he is the only ambassador during the Kennedy administration who has a direct line to JFK. He doesn't have to go through the Secretary of State. His cables go straight to the White House. Um, so this is somebody who has a lot of a lot of influence uh, over the years, kind of no matter where he is, whether he's in his you know office at Litauer Hall at Harvard or whether he's in the White House. Um, so I see him as somebody who you know again we talk about the Rostows and the Millikans, and of course people like Walt Rostow. You know he became national security advisor. He was a crucial figure in this story. But I, I kind of like to find the less well-known, um, you know, icons of modernization and development to show really how um, how thoroughgoing this was as a worldview. So, where does the U.S. first start doing these projects? What are what are the first sites of U.S. development that get off the ground in the in the Cold War period, and in what ways? Do they shape the direction of development, even if it's, you know, lessons learned what not to do or what to do? How is this felt internationally? So the very first development program, you know, that's sort of debuted as part of the new U.S. post-war hegemony is, um, you know, referred to as point four because it came from the this fourth point of Harry Truman's, um, you know, inaugural address in 1949. And, you know, the one of the things I think is fascinating about studying the history of development is that there are a lot of weird origin myths and there are books written about these origin myths uh, for different development programs. So, like, if you look at books on point four, there are many excellent ones, but all of them have to tell this story, this like legend of the weird origins of point four. Similarly with the Peace Corps, there's so many books <laughs> about, again, like just how, you know, the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and know, it's all, yeah, it's all sort of filled it, it, with, you know, <laughs> the drama of liberals and their favorite policymakers and intellectuals trying to make something better. So, right. you know, point <laughs> four from, from all that we know comes out of, you know, a fairly, um, you know, random set of requests from the White House for some new ideas about foreign relations. But really, it also comes from the concern that decolonization, which, you know, is already visible to foreign policymakers, although perhaps not as central as it should have been in their eyes, um, that decolonization is going to provoke, uh, you know, essentially new challenges for the U.S. in this crucial moment in which, again, in the domestic context, American liberals are trying to make the argument that the United States has to take responsibility for the world. And so having an answer to the problem of like, well, what are you going to do about those people, you know, is something that there's a political imperative for that. So point four is the first um, big development program. And, and yet, and it's, you know, presented as a bold new program and people talk about it a lot, you know, in, in the literature of, of development, but and contemporaries talked about it a lot as a huge initiative. But ultimately, point four was a fairly small undertaking that, you know, that was born at a moment of real crisis for liberals about defending state power, because they've got this sort of, you know, the first wave of really ferocious anti-communism after the war. And so they're having to, again, you know, pay fealty to 
with these old progressive ideas of no, this isn't, you know, this isn't socialism. This isn't a big state program. This is volunteerism, the best tradition of American charity, you know, and we're just going to send some good people who can teach the farmers of the world how to, you know, grow better crops um, abroad. So, it's sold pretty much both as like the solution to the spread of communism. So again, this sort of tendency to oversell <laughs> development programs is a real part of the story, but also as, you know, it's just a little thing and it's a public private partnership. And we're really just going to try to encourage private investment in these decolonized spaces. And, you know, so a country that receives a, a point for, you know, aid is Iran. And, you know, it's, it comes in the form of agricultural experts who come to Iran or go to Iran to, um, you know, offer advice to the government about how it can, you know, improve this or that grain crop. Um, but at the same time, it's, it doesn't come with like tons and tons of money. It's, it's sold as, you know, essentially aid from the kind and brilliant people of the United States um, to these countries. So, what I think is important about a program like that in a case like Iran is it does actually create connections between modernizers in these countries and, you know, essentially a network of contacts that they will rely on over the years in the United States. And so it sort of starts to create um, what we might call more uh, subtle networks of, of development expertise. Um, you know, it doesn't really have hugely tangible impacts other than knitting experts together. So uh, one of the things that you gestured toward with your use of the term modernization are, are there are theories of development. Um, the most famous one being, of course, modernization theory, which is, um, there's lots of, you know, it's kind of like the telephone. A lot of people are talking about this thing at the same time, but what's generally identified is at the Center uh, for International Studies at MIT, where Walt Rostow and Max Millikan and Daniel Lerner and a bunch of other famous modernization theorists congregate. And they essentially develop uh, a stages theory of, of civilization with the United States, of course, standing at the apex of this stage's history, um, because in, in some sense, they want to challenge Marxism. They want to provide an alternative theory of history to Marxism, which is, I think, Walt Rostow's book is subtitled, um, it, what is the Stages of Economic Growth, subtitled A, a Non-Communist Manifesto. Is that correct? So um, the, that's the big one of modernization theory. But as Daniel Imervar and others have shown, there are competing um, you know, methods, and as you, as you gesture toward more local development. So what are the the major, what are the major approaches to development that begin to get going in the 1950s? Um, who are their advocates? How do they differ? And then how are they instantiated in government, if at all? So, um, I personally think, and you know, Daniel and I have talked about this a lot, that modernization theory kind of takes up all the air in the room when we want to talk about the history of really global poverty fighting in, in the United States. Um, I, I think we can over-determine the sort of um, orthodoxy of modernization theory and the way that it, it met policymakers where they thought they were. Um, I, I think modernization theory is one flavor that in the, in the 
guise of somebody like Rostow does have enormous influence, but as Daniel points out, and as, as, as several other scholars do, it's certainly not the only one that's out there. Um, you know, community development, the notion that also comes out of the 1930s in the U.S. and out of the progressive movement a little earlier, the notion that you can build, you know, stable societies from at the community level and avoid this sort of big status strategy for, um, for, you know, development, that is uh, very au courant. And people like John Collier come right from that tradition. And it's very so, obvious why that would be attractive, right? You don't need the big totalitarian state. You exactly. could just do it locally. You could have your Jefferson Jeffersonian yeomanry uh, throughout the world. <laughs> yeah. And it also, I mean, one of the things I think that's, again, really important to attend to is the way that that generation of development thinkers, these are people who sort of came to intellectual consciousness really after the heyday of social Darwinism, when social Darwinist ideas, especially if they lived through the 1930s, had really reached their terrible apogee, right, in the rise of Nazism. And a lot of these intellectuals are looking for a way to think about poverty and to think about what they would call backwardness that does not rely upon ideas about race, uh, especially biological ideas of race. And so I think that for a lot of those community development advocates, they're saying like, look, this is, people are the same everywhere. And if you give them a sense of belonging and give them, you know, aid and making their lives better on a tangible level, um, you know, that's development. And so we don't need to have some big white man's burden scheme here. What we need is to share our know-how. I think that's a trope that comes up in development discourse from, from the 1930s onward. And that's a very different one from the, the later 19th century and the early 20th century is that we have to share know-how. That's what development is. Right. And um, the late, just to be clear, in the late 19th, early 20th century, it's a lot about Anglo-Saxon culture and like giving Polish immigrants the Anglo-Saxon traits that they need to succeed in the United States. And that exactly. falls out by the middle of the 20th century. Right. There's the a lot of sort effectively. of, there's a lot of Protestant work ethic. There's there's a lot of, you know, just the assumption that Western civilization, whatever, you know, uh, as that was defined at the time. Which defined really, in a million ways. yeah, Exactly. But that people, that yeah. was the apex of, of, uh, of civilization. You know, you're right to say that modernization theorists, and I will get back to your big question, um, but you're right to say that modernization theorists thought that the United States in the 1950s was the apex of modernity. But one of the reasons why is that, again, that generation of people had seen, you know, racial nationalism actually threatened to take over the world. And they'd seen racial nationalism at home. And believe it or not, even though the 1950s, you know, we know that Jim Crow was in full force, they are also seeing a country that is, uh, especially after World War II, more racially diverse and more pluralistic in the main than at any time before. And so they're also feeling like not only have we got this capitalism thing figured out in the context of the New Deal state, but we've also kind of got this like pluralist democracy thing figured out. So when they are identifying the United States in the 1950s as the apex of modernity, it's very different than, you know, a bunch of Belgian you know, administrators in the Congo in the 19th century. So I think those are important, again, important differences to, to tease out. Um, but, you know, modernization theory really has its greatest appeal in the early 1960s when 
um, the third world came to really be seen as a strategic vulnerability in this global contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. Shada, can I just ask a question about that? Because this is not, I, I did focus a bit on this period in my own research, but not a ton. My general understanding is that there's a turn to the third world after Checkpoint Charlie and the Cuban Missile Crisis, coupled with the Alliance for Progress. So just to, what, make, what that means is that you have these significant confrontations in the Kennedy administration uh, against the Soviet Union, the Cuba, famous Cuban Missile Crisis, and also in Berlin at, at so-called Checkpoint Charlie. So kind of Khrushchev and Kennedy are like, let's cool off a little bit. They install the famous red phone in the White House. We're going to talk. And so you you have a, a basic movement of the Cold War's primary battlefield from Europe to the so-called Third World. Now, the Third World was always involved in it. Obviously, the famous um, uh, actions of, of the CIA in the 50s of overthrowing Mossadegh in Iran and Yacob Arbenz in Guatemala. So it's not a clean, super clean break, but there does seem to be a shift. And is am I right? And is that why? development really begins to like take off in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's my sense. Okay. I don't think you're wrong, but I think you're not entirely right. <laughs> Perfect. Tell so, me where I'm wrong. So I think there are a couple things that shift the needle towards the so-called third world, a term that was of course first used as a liberatory one. Um, so I think part of what happens is, yes, certainly the threat of an atomic confrontation means that everybody is looking for other ways to compete. It's no accident that the space race is also happening at this time. I mean, they're just, you have to find other ways than meeting on a battlefield, which after the Korean War was really, you know, right. um, people had kind of seen how terribly wrong things could go. Um, so clearly the idea of sort of finding proxies for this competition is important. But also, so Khrushchev is also trying to emphasize that um, he's trying to kind of de-escalate uh, the Cold War starting in the 1950s. Obviously, the famous kitchen debate is a good example of this. And he's arguing that with his sort of, um, you know, uh, dismissal of Stalinism, he's basically saying, look, we actually have to prove as the Soviet Union that we have a viable way to make people's lives good. And so let's improve the standard of living in ways that matter to people in the 1950s in the Soviet Union. But he also says, hey, you know, what we actually offer to this really vertiginous decolonizing world, because of course the 50s is this incredible tidal wave of, of global change, um, you know, that what we have to offer are real strategies for rapid development that can improve people's lives, you know, immediately. And he's saying we can get you in Soviet style apartments with cool mid-century modern Soviet, you know, dishes and plates and appliances and get your women who are basically equal in, you know, nice Soviet fashions. We can do all that. Everything that the Americans are offering you, we can do without the exploitation and with a tradition of anti-imperialism as opposed to a tradition of racialist imperialism. So, I mean, I think, you know, when we think about why the U.S. turns toward the third world and why development becomes a real imperative, it's partly because they are really being called on their shit. And the other thing I would say, and this is sort of an overarching point that as I was reflecting on, on this theme, you know, it, it's really important to get across and again goes to this connection between liberals and development, is, you know, poverty talk is most prevalent among American liberals when affluence talk 
is most prevalent. When affluence is on their mind, they become concerned about poverty. And the 1950s is obviously the decade in which, despite a few little hiccups here and there, the United States economy is producing economic growth of such unprecedented, really unimaginable, um, you know, uh, scope. And so I, I think you also have a Democratic Party, which had been in power for so long and in 1952 loses the White House after really believing. Galbraith says, you know, the Democratic control of the White House had become for people of his generation, he says this at the time, the natural order of things. And now it isn't. And so they have to find issues that can sell people because Eisenhower's basically said, fine, the New Deal's great, whatever, let's just do it. They have to find issues that can make an argument for why Democrats deserve to be in government again. And, you know, I think obviously this is like small bore sort of electoral politics stuff, but I actually think as we're seeing in our own day and age, you know, when two U.S. senators can basically hold back a tidal wave of, of economic reform and democracy reform, the little political fights really matter and they wind up having important consequences. So, you know, when you look at it's this is like about to be the most boring sentence I will ever utter. But mm -hmm. when you look at the congressional elections and who is running against Republicans throughout the 1950s, when you look at the presidential campaign campaigns of two of them, of Adelaide Stevenson, you actually see that the poverty of the world contrasted with the affluence of the United States are becoming core issues. And they are becoming, you know, arguments that Democrats are making for why Republicans shouldn't be in power. Because remember, at this exact time, Eisenhower is still fighting legit isolationists who don't want the United States to be involved in these international treaty organizations, don't want the United States like to have Robert a foreign Taft, aid. Like Robert Taft, people like yeah. that, yeah. So, you know, again, if we think about our kind of fucked up political system, the arguments that people are having, you know, in what is now the Russell Senate office building, um, you know, that actually really does shape what presidents do and what they think they can do. And so I think when you see the turn towards the third world, it's really Democrats putting pressure on Eisenhower saying, you know, all you've got for these people who are going to be voting members of the United Nations, all you've got for these people so far are a bunch of military coups and, you know, wagging finger and you send Richard Nixon there and they throw fruit at him. Like you've got to have more than this. And so John Kennedy is, you know, not ideologically committed to anti-poverty fighting. He's extremely, you know, um, pragmatic as a political thinker. But when people like Arthur Schlesinger and Chester Bowles and John Kenneth Galbraith, when they look at the landscape of political candidates in the late 1950s, who, you know, they've kind of given up, it's, it was a hard struggle to give up on Adelaide Stevenson, but when they finally do, they're looking for someone who will make world poverty meaning poverty in the third world, a cornerstone of the campaign. And they find that in, in Kennedy. And there are all sorts of interesting theories about why that's the case, why he seems to be particularly sensitive to the issues of decolonization. You know, a lot of it comes down to sort of a level of political opportunism from him too. But, you know, as early as, as uh, you know, the early 50s, he's going around giving speeches about the third world. So, Part of why, um, you know, this happens in, in Kennedy's administration is because liberals have been laying the groundwork for this kind of policy movement, you know, for a while, for at least a decade. And I see it very much as a response to these domestic political issues.
Well, Shada, thank you so much. There's so much there, and we are going to to let everyone know how the sausage is made. We just had a little conversation, and Shada is going to come back to tell the second half of the story of development, but uh, we'll leave listeners wanting. So again, Shada Jahanbani, Associate Professor at the University of Kansas, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you.